Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. For Life on the Line, Thomas Kay spoke with Adrian Clooney's Ross in Adrian's home in Canberra. This is their talk about Adrian's long career in army training, deployments to Vietnam and other highlights. Enjoy. I'm Thomas Kay and I'm joined today by Adrian Clinis Ross. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Uh, so let's start from the very beginning. Um, who was Adrian Clinis Ross before joining the armed forces? Who was he? Well, he was a schoolboy fundamentally. I went from uh, Scotch in Melbourne to Duntroon in 1952. So I came straight from school into uh, into the military, fundamentally. Had four years at Duntroon, uh, graduated into the uh, army proper. From then on, I had a military career for the next 38 years. Uh, and what inspired you to uh, join the army? Uh, I don't know particularly. I was in the cadets at uh, Scotch. I enjoyed the uh, what we were doing, and uh, I always had a sense that I might go into the army. And when the time came, I. I thought of applying for Duntrin and uh, I did and, and got in. It's very hard to say what precisely inspires you to do certain things. If um, if I hadn't got into Duntrin, I was going to do law at the university. Okay. Did you ever have any um, family members in the army before you? Well, I had three uncles in the First World War and a couple of uncles in the Second. Uh, not in the army. One was in the oh, one was in the army. One was in the uh, air force in the Second World War. In the First World War, they were all in the army, and two of them didn't come back from the First World War. And the other one, who was the eldest of the three, uh, came back very badly, knocked around with gas. So my father was the youngest of four. He was the only one who survived the First World War unscathed, but he he was too young to go, fortunately. What can you tell us about your first posting? First posting was to a National Service Battalion. In those days, the first National Service scheme had started in uh, 52, I think, the first intake came in. And they were all 18-year-olds, and they were committed uh, for three months, and it was universal. So all males had to register, and if they were fit, they came in. And that was in marked contrast to the second National Service scheme, which was a selective scheme, and which was for two years and involved operational service if required. So these boys of 18 came in. They came in as um, university intakes or city intakes or country intakes. And in those days, some of them came in, certainly from the country, dressed in a pair of shorts, a singlet, and that was it. Others were somewhat better dressed. And all the intakes were different depending on where they came from. The university intakes uh, were better at anything to do with uh, cerebral work, but they weren't so good in, in the practical side. The country boys, of course, were very good on the practical side. I had a platoon once of uh, Broken Hill miners. Uh, they were all 18-year-old. They'd all been working in the mines in Broken Hill. And when they came in, they had enough money to charter 
an aircraft to fly down. This was in 1952 because they were all on what was called the silver lead bonus in those days. And people said, oh, you know, miners, they must have been terribly difficult to handle and so on and so forth. Well, quite the reverse. They were extremely easy to handle because they were extremely well disciplined. And they were used to working underground in small groups. Uh, They were used to uh, having uh, a hierarchy and they were used to looking after each other. And uh, they fitted into the army extraordinarily well. And they're extraordinarily well disciplined and very competitive. Didn't matter what, what you're competing at, but they would compete, I can assure you. So they were, they were an excellent group, but most of, the, most of the groups were pretty good. They came out after three months and uh, it was a f- fairly useful exercise. I think uh, many people who went through that scheme uh, said it had quite a significant bearing on what they did subsequently. Uh, perhaps not quite as much as the second scheme where they were in for two years. But again, that was uh, selective and only a, a limited number did it. Following on from the National Service, um, where were you posted? I was posted to uh, the 1st Battalion, the Pacific Islands Regiment in New Guinea, headquartered in Port Moresby. It was a, um, a unit that had been started during the Second World War. The object of the exercise was to train the locals to be used in operations and they had been used in this way in the second world war to a certain degree as uh, scouts for australian forces in other words they would be used to be the eyes and ears of any australian force which had to deploy in close country in uh, in png so that that was the original purpose of the pir or pib as it was in initial stage but then the pir pacific islands regiment in those days, there was only one battalion and it had two outstations, one in Wanamoe, which was on the north coast of PNG, about 10 miles from what was then the Dutch border. And the other was in Manus Island, which has become quite well known recently as a place for refugees. So they had the two outstations and uh, most people did a certain period of time on each of those outstations. I did both Wanamoe and Manus. They are very different. Wanamoe is very isolated. Apart from the, the company of um, PIR, there was a, a Catholic priest lived across the bay. He'd been there for about, well, since the Second World War. And occasionally there was a, uh, what was called a, a licklick doctor, a uh, paramedic from the administration who lived close by, and that was it. And there was nothing else for a considerable number of miles in, the, in all directions, apart from the, uh, the capital of Dutch New Guinea, Hollandia, which was across the border. What was it like training the locals? Oh, very different. Language of the regiment was Neo-Melanesian or Pidgin, and most of them spoke Pidgin. Some spoke some English, which they'd learnt in mission schools, but not many. How did it go with the um, connection between the Australians and the Papua New Guineans while training? Oh, it was perfectly perfectly okay. Um, they accepted the fact that we were there and we were running the show, we were paying them. There didn't seem to be much uh, difficulty, but there was occasionally, occasionally you'd get some activity which um, caused consternation. One particular uh, exercise, when we were up at Wanamoe, we used to uh, communicate with Moresby twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. One particular occasion, I think it was a Sunday actually, we'd communicate in the morning and everything was okay. And during the day, some of the troops came up to us and said there's been big trouble in Port Moresby. And sure enough, when we got uh, on the uh, radio late in the day, there had been big trouble in Port Moresby. So uh, they had some method of communicating with each other, and I don't know, never worked out how it was, but they did know. What had happened uh, 
was um, uh, one of the troops had been uh, attacked down in the local market in Moresby. The troops in Moresby had decided they were going to take some action. So on the Sunday morning, they dressed up in their number one gear and they all marched out the, the gate. Someone came into the mess and said, you know, well, they've all, they're all marching towards Moresby, which was quite a long way away. So they all marched down the road, marched past the uh, headquarters of PNG at Murray Barracks and the new commanding officer of PII who was there at the time got out in the road and tried to stop them and they took no notice of him because they didn't know him. And that's one of the interesting features of, of service in those days. If they knew the Australian officer, uh, it was a totally different story. If they didn't know him, they didn't really worry about his rank or anything else. And uh, he failed to stop them and they marched down to Koki and uh, started to take on the locals. Well, this caused quite consternation amongst the European population in Moresby because some people claimed that, you know, there was rape and insurrection was about to occur, which was nonsense. It was purely a, a matter of uh, taking action against uh, people who'd uh, done something to one of their own. Subsequently, they were all uh, those who had fought at Koki were, were uh, hauled up before the beak and they, talk, they, they took the... Uh, magistrate out to Tarama Barracks, which was the headquarters of the regiment, and they brought the local police in. Now, the, the local police and the army didn't like each other, uh, so it was a very bad mistake bringing the police in. They lined all these fellows up outside the, uh, the magistrate's office and they marched, uh, each was marched in and, uh, individually and was asked, did you fight at Koki? And those who had fought at Koki said no, and those who hadn't fought at Koki said yes. Now, you, you, can, you can work out why they did that. I, I don't know, but they, they had some peculiarities, put it that way. And as the fellows marched out the other uh, door, they found that those who hadn't fought at Koki had been convicted, and those who did fought at Koki hadn't been convicted, so they thought that the whole thing was a setup. And they raced in and overturned the, uh, overturned the court. Well, that, uh, that created even more consternation amongst the local people, local Europeans. Okay. <laughs> but those sort of things happened occasionally. That was a, that was a, a significant uh, event. And it was not directed against the army. It was not directed against uh, the officers of the army at all. It was purely to do with internal, intertribal, if you like, problems. So in one example, the locals looked out for you when it came to a river crossing. Can you tell me about that? When you went on, on patrol with a, a platoon, you had to cross uh, a certain number of waterways. They didn't like going into water with uh, any Europeans because they thought Europeans attracted the sharks and the crocodiles. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, but they thought it was. So they would uh, carry you across. They were quite happy to swim. If they were what's called saltwater boys, in other words, they came from the coast, they were quite happy to swim with sharks or crocodiles for that matter. It didn't seem to worry them at all. Uh, some of them have, some of them belong to a, a, a shark or a crocodile totem. In fact, in Manus, um, we used to go out crocodile spotting at night and have a, two or three uh, of the lo local uh, troops with us and go out in a, in a small boat and ferry around and suddenly you see these two great ruby eyes sitting about that far apart, which meant there was a, a ruddy big crocodile. <laughs> And uh, the croc would just subside under the water and they'd be quite happy to go in after him and fill, fill with their feet. We didn't allow them to do that. We thought uh, having um, a couple of uh, the local troops eaten for officer sport wouldn't have looked too good. But anyway, <laughs> they had no fear. If, if they were, came, from the sea, uh, came from the coastal areas, if they came from the inland, it was a totally different story. After your time in Papua New Guinea, where were you uh, posted? 
Oh, I posted to uh, Army Office for a short while in Melbourne and then in Canberra. That didn't last long. And then uh, was posted to uh, Vietnam with the Australian Army Training Team. What was your role there in Vietnam? The first group that went to Vietnam was a group of 30. When we got there, we were split up into various locations and we were part of American advisory units. Uh, at that stage in Vietnam, there were about 12,000 Americans. There were no uh, operational units as such, in other words, no infantry battalions, those sorts of things, but the Americans were doing uh, quite a lot of operational work. For instance, all the uh, helicopter operations that were done by the South Vietnamese were flown by US Marines. The Americans were doing all the administration and providing the Vietnamese with uh, logistic support and also advisory support. So our job was actually to act as uh, advisors, so-called, in a training establishment. So we were all split up into various different locations and we were then required to assist the Vietnamese in their training. We were located uh, alongside a Vietnamese regiment, which in our terms was a brigade, in other words, three battalions, and uh, those battalions trained for a period of time and then went back into operations. And that's how that training system carried on right through. But in addition to that, we started going out on operations with the Vietnamese army and that carried on. And subsequently, various Australians became permanently allotted to Vietnamese battalions or units and stayed with them. And we had to deal with them uh, through interpreters. Now, if you're dealing through interpreters, if the interpreter is of a lower rank to the, the Vietnamese officer you're talking about, there is no way that any criticism uh, will ever be passed over by the interpreter to the fellow who's more senior. It would be uh, <laughs> very difficult for the interpreter in due course if he did. So you never quite knew what, what was being passed over. Under normal circumstances, uh, generally speaking, I'm sure they did pass over what was required, but there is always that proviso that if there's any hint of criticism of someone in, in authority, it would never get to, get to first base. And of course, they, they lived, the, Viet, the Vietnamese troops lived in a totally different environment. They would start training very early in the day, and generally speaking, it was hot, and they would come in late at night and they would do that day after day after day. They sometimes existed on very little pay. Uh, the Vietnamese army had a system whereby money was passed down the, the line uh, to the commander. So the commander of the training installation, the Vietnamese commander of the training installation would get a packet of money. Now, how he distributed that money was entirely up to him. And that's how the system worked. And so it got certain amounts of money were extracted right down the line. So. On occasions, of course, the troops missed out. The other thing was most of them were, were agricultural peasants at the lower level, and when the harvest was on, some of them would take off to go back and harvest the rice because there'd be no, no one else to do it. Uh, so there would be a certain amount of uh, absence without leave and, uh, at particular times of the year, but they were treated very very harshly if they were caught. I believe when you um, when you got there, you were given an escape kit. Can you tell me about that? Uh, we we were close to the the border with uh, North Vietnam, and um, the thought process at the higher level was that here you had a country which was divided, and it was a, a mirror image of Korea. And what had happened in Korea was, of course, that North uh, Koreans had invaded, and then 
been assisted by the Chinese. So the thought was that if they came, they were going to come across the parallel and invade the south. It didn't happen that way. They did come across, but not across the parallel. They came round the, round the back through Laos in due course. So uh, at some stage, just after we got there, some fellow USNCO came round and said, here's your escape kit. And what's that for? And I said, well, that's if they come across, you know, they invade across the parallel. And I said, well, so what? What are we supposed to do then? He said, just head for Da Nang, which was <laughs> it wasn't a very uh, complete plan. And the escape kit consisted of a compass and a, a bit of food and things like that. Da Nang was quite a long way to the south. If it had ever occurred, it would have been a very interesting exercise, I think, and <laughs> it would have been every man for himself. Of course, the training team stayed in Vietnam for 10 years between 1962 and 1972, were the last, first in and last out. So after South Vietnam, where was your next posting? Oh, I went to um, 1RAR Battle Group in Holsworthy. So I went to Holsworthy uh, as a... Uh, captain and eventually became a company commander in that organisation. When Vietnam occurred, the battle group was split into two battalions, one and five. I was posted to uh, the officer training unit at Skyville, which was a unit to train national service officers. So I was part of the original uh, element that went there and we, we had these national service come in, as I explained before, they were people who had volunteered to become officers, who'd been called up, then were uh, went through a selection process and then came in. There was a considerable amount of uh, angst at the time at the higher levels in politics and, uh, and the military about how these people would react because they were conscripts off the street and then being required to go through some pretty intense training for about five and a half months. Uh, but the fact was, of course, they reacted extremely well. They, in fact, would would do anything to ensure that they graduated. I'll give you one one example of uh, how keen these people were. If they didn't do the final exercise, it didn't matter what they'd done before, they couldn't graduate. They had to go and do the whole course again. A lot of people were failed. About a third of each course were failed, and sometimes up to about half. But on this particular occasion, uh, as one of the early courses, uh, we were about to go on the final exercise and one of the uh, cadets had been on the, doing a rope exercise and had fallen off and broken both his arms. So he was left behind. We went on the exercise at Pocolan, which is in the Hunter Valley in very rough country just south of Singleton. And about two days into the exercise, this fellow turned up with both his arms in plaster and I said to him what are you doing here and he said oh, I've got to I've got, I want to do the exercise and I said you can't possibly do the exercise with two broken arms he said oh yeah the boys will look after me and so on and so forth so I said oh all right okay <laughs> if you're as keen as all that you can stay and he did and he graduated and he was the first national service officer killed in Vietnam uh, Gordon Sharp he was killed with uh, six RAR at the Battle of Long Tan. What was your next uh, overseas posting? to Malaysia with the 8th Battalion. I joined them in um, February or January of 68. The battalion was part of 28th Commonwealth Brigade. The Commonwealth Brigade was a uh, tri-national brigade of Britain, Australia and New Zealand. There was an infantry battalion from each of the countries and the command alternated between an Australian or Brit or, or a Kiwi brigadier. And 28th Brigade was part of the, um, although it was located in Malaysia, in Tarenda, near Malacca. It was part of CETO Plan 4, 
CETAO being the Southeast Asian Treaty Organisation, and Plan 4 was for the defence of Northeast Thailand. In the event of the Chinese coming down through that part of the world into Northeast Thailand, CETAO Plan 4 was to be activated, and 28 Brigade was part of that plan. There are many other uh, elements as well. The area that we were allocated was on the Mekong River uh, in Northeast Thailand near Muktahan. Uh, so we went up there to have a look at the area that we'd been allocated. It was allocated to a brigade. It was probably a large enough area for a division. In other words, it was a huge area which <laughs> which, which we'd been allocated. Unfortunately, CETO Plan 4 was never activated. If it had been, I, I'd hate to think what would have happened. But uh, uh, we had a huge area which to deploy the battalion in the high country overlooking the Mekong. But fundamentally... Uh, 28 Brigade was part of the uh, strategic reserve for Southeast Asia for the three countries concerned. There were wives and families and uh, all the various amenities. We spent uh, most of the time training with or against the Gurkha Brigade, which was down the road, and uh, we did some very interesting exercises. And as uh, Vietnam was on at that stage, we, we did a number of exercises which were specifically oriented towards deployment uh, to Vietnam. So it was a quite a pleasant period of time there, uh, apart from the, the training aspect, uh, which was good and useful from the uh, personal point of view and the family point of view. It was very good, a good area to be in. Adrian's wife, Julianne, joined in for this next question. Whenabouts did um, you form your family? When did you meet your wife? Well, in, uh, in Port Moresby, as a matter of fact, her parents had, uh, were living there at the time and she had come back from England to... Uh, be with her parents, I presume. That was the, the no, reason. You're going back to England to marry somebody else, actually. Oh. And you said, well, if you go back to England, that's the last I'll be seeing of you. Nobody's ever spoken to me like that before. That's a, theoretically what's supposed to have occurred, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was quite good. <laughs> you weren't going to let me rough my way through. <laughs> So then, anyway, that's uh, that's where we made in 1960. Okay, and you, you both um, went away to to separate um, postings overseas, occasionally stayed together. Oh well, in Vietnam was separate, and in, in Malaysia was um, together. Yes, yeah. So eight uh, RAR uh, eventually came back to Australia. Did six months training in Australia. Married up with uh, a cadre of troops that had been allocated to it in Australia and then deployed to Vietnam in November 1969. How did um, everything go on operation? Well, uh, it went about as well as it, it generally goes. We had one particular setback in, uh, in February 70, when a, one of our platoons was heading up a, an area in the Long High Mountains, um, close to Vuong Town, just south of the task force base. It was an area which had been under VC control probably since uh, the Second World War, even before the Second World War, being VC control on and off, under communist control anyway. Uh, it was known to be uh, very heavily uh, mined and wired, so they uh, mined and, and booby-trapped, and so they were uh, heading up the hill prodding. And this is a technique that you use when there's mines. Uh, you, you prod for mines in the ground, so you're moving very, very slowly. So they're moving at about... 100 metres an hour. The acting platoon sergeant called a halt. While they were readjusting themselves for the uh, halt, the engineer, a couple of engineers with them, uh, one of the uh, sappers apparently triggered a booby trap and that 
killed eight and wounded about 13 uh, in one hit. There was only one NCO left standing and he, he prodded out an area for the uh, helicopter evacuation to come in. And when the uh, first helicopter was coming in, he put his foot outside the cleared area and triggered another mine, killed himself and, and another three. As one of the wounded died, there were about nine dead and, and about 15 wounded in the space of a few minutes. It virtually wiped that platoon off the uh, off the order of battle. So that was a significant setback. And that particular operation, Operation Hammersley, had uh, a considerable number of wounded and some others killed, apart from the battalion, because there are other units involved in it. Uh, but uh, like everything else, you just get on with the job. And uh, the battalion was uh, well disciplined, uh, uh, well trained, and uh, got on and continued on for the next nine months doing uh, what it's supposed to do. There was nothing quite as dramatic as that, but from time to time, of course, we had a number of casualties from, in, in various ways. But the, the, the object of what we were doing there in uh, Phuc Thuy province and what other battalions had been doing was clearing the province of uh, the VC. Now, the VC were divided into three groups, essentially. There were the village guerrillas who were at the lowest level who were essentially providing logistics to the other formed VC elements. Then there were the provincial units, which were organised as battalions. And then there were the North Vietnamese, who would occasionally put in an appearance as at the Battle of Long Tan. And they were formed as a, a regular army, essentially. The provincial uh, guerrillas in the middle level were in battalion groups and were organised, but they were not organised as an army as such. The Australian uh, exercise in Phuc Thuy was to clear the Phuc Thuy province of any VC elements. While we operated in Phuc Thuy, most of the time, occasionally, uh, we would operate outside in adjacent provinces, but that province was peculiarly an Australian exercise. And although Americans, uh, we had some American support, artillery support, and other support from time to time, it was fundamentally an Australian area. So most battalions were involved in doing pretty much the same sort of exercise. The 8th Battalion, our commanding officer, had decided that there wasn't much point in meeting up with bunker systems and, and trying to charge into bunker systems, which caused a lot of casualties. And he thought that a better system was to try and get round the populated areas and prevent the VC contacting the locals. Because in counterinsurgency, the, the contact of VC with the locals is, is the key element. It had been in Malaysia some time before. And if you can keep the VC elements away from the local population, then they can't exercise any control over them. So his view was that you get around the populated areas and you prevent these people making contact. And generally that was pretty successful. Uh, so we had quite uh, some considerable success in doing just that. It wasn't a new concept, but it was a concept that was reborn, I suppose, to some degree in, in, uh, in Vietnam. And following your time in Vietnam, what, what happened next? I came back with the battalion to Inogra in Brisbane. About six months later, was posted to America, to the US Army Command and General Staff College, which was the Army Staff College in our terms, at Leavenworth in Kansas. So we did a year there and then did six months down at the School of Infantry at Benning in Georgia. The School of Infantry, uh, just to give you some idea of the scale of US activity, 
There were 38,000 uniformed personnel on that base, 38,000 uniformed personnel, let alone wives and families. <laughs> and that was one, one base. So uh, <laughs> they had a, a demonstration brigade there. That was a brigade of troops who were specifically there just to demonstrate to people coming through on training courses how things were done. Gives you some idea of the scale of uh, US activity. Leavenworth itself, the staff college, there were 1,500 students. The reason for the size was because Vietnam was still going on at that stage and they had picking up people who'd, who'd missed out before. There were 100 foreigners on the course uh, of 1,500 from God knows how many different uh, countries. So it was a very interesting course. Were there any things that were done differently with the between the American troops and the Australian vastly, troops? Vastly differently, yeah. The American Staff College was at a much higher level. Division was the lowest level, the Staff College, and everything above above divisional level, Corps, Army, Field Army, and so on. So we were division and below at uh, our Staff College. That's because of the size of the American Army and the, the, the scale. And So it, the instruction was vastly different. It was all done, generally all done in the classroom. There was really no practical work done outside, as there was at the Australian Army Staff College. A lot of work done in the field and chits and things like that but in the american system there was just too many people to do that sort of thing so following um posting in the states what next i came back to the 8th battalion as the ceo i had been the ceo before it uh, morphed into the 8th 9th battalion at that stage we were cutting down the army after vietnam and then i had about 18 months there and then came down to canberra for the joint services staff college here then I had a certain period of time in Army office at the headquarters and then subsequently was posted to Duntroon as the what's called the DMA, the Director of Military Art. I went to uh, South Australia as the commanding of uh, four military district uh, as a brigadier, then had um, two years there and then went to London as head of Australian Defence Staff. Just after we arrived, the Falklands War occurred and we had two years in London then came back to command the 1st Division in, in Brisbane. And was that um, in Brisbane, was that your final posting in the Army? No, no, I uh, did two years there and then came down to uh, be Chief of Operations down in Canberra, four years virtually as Chief of Operations. And that was the last the last posting, yeah. During the, the time I was Chief of Operations, we just started sending people overseas again. Uh, there had been a hiatus after Vietnam where very little overseas work had occurred. In 1987, we sent a squadron of engineers to Namibia, which was um, unusual to say the least. I mean, we hadn't been involved with Africa since the Second World War. That began a series of uh, deployments. Uh, one other deployment, which was done in my time, uh, was send a group to Iran during the Iran-Iraq War. They had a uh, particularly unpleasant uh, uh, exercise uh, while they were there. They were supposed to be there as observers. The Iranians didn't want them there and it was a particularly uh, a bloody exercise, the Iranian-Iraq war. So those people uh, didn't have a very pleasant time at all. But that was a, a, another element that we sent overseas at that period. And then, of course, subsequently, uh, we started sending people to other areas. We'd always had people in Palestine and um, Israel uh, since the end of the Second World War. 
and we had had people in um, Pakistan for a considerable period of time. But we, those particular exercises were the start of almost continuous deployments of Australians uh, to places that we'd never believed we'd get involved in, such as the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq. And if you'd said, uh, you know, 10 years before we were likely to get involved in the Middle East, people would have looked at you as nuts. In fact, uh, one uh, distinguished civilian had produced a report not long before we sent the first group to Namibia that Australians would never deploy overseas again. Well, from then on, of course, we, we did nothing but. So, <laughs> and that's continued on to the present. So what um, rank did you leave the army on? Uh, Major General. So I was a Major General in, in London and in Brisbane and down here. Following your extensive 38 years in the military, what uh, ventures did you take on afterwards? I was on the uh, Defence Committee of the RSL and chairman of that committee for about 20 years. I was given a a task by the government as part of the Defence Review in 2000, which was to look at the views of the Australian population in relation to defence issues. So with a team headed by Andrew Peacock, we went around the country talking to people and listening to groups and then subsequently put in a report to the government, which... Uh, formed quite significant basis of the uh, Defence White Paper, which followed shortly thereafter. So that was a very interesting time. Adrian, you have had one heck of a career. Thank you for welcoming us into your home and for joining us and speaking to us on this podcast. Pleasure. That was Thomas Kay speaking with Adrian Clooney's Ross. If you're not, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We have an interview with an Australian veteran out every Tuesday and bonus episodes on Fridays. Do reach out to us on social media too. You can like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at LOTL Pod. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.